Good morning and welcome to Blackrock College Radio with your hosts Ryan Kyo, Evan Lyons, Jack Dempsey-Sally and William Connellan. Today we'll be talking with acclaimed novelist Paul Howard. Journalist, author and comedy writer, Paul is best known for his creation of the South Dublin jock character Russell Carroll Kelly. He's one of Ireland's most decorated authors and has sold over 1.5 million copies of his books. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Always a pleasure. Uh, first question needs addressing right away. The rock carriage story. Is it true? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> and it happened. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it happened exactly as I told um, on television last year. Um, this was kind of sometime in the late 1990s, maybe early 2000s. Uh, I was getting on, a tr- on the train and um, it was the dart. And the first, the first two or three carriages were absolutely packed with people and the last carriage is empty um, and I walked down to the last carriage and there was maybe sort of five or six uh, guys in blazers uh, in the carriage and uh, I pressed the button and the doors opened and as I, as I went to get on the guy put his hand on my chest and said sorry dude this is a rock carriage um, which uh, <laughs> having, having been raised as I was to believe that Black Rock College kids would inherit the earth um, I, I actually apologized and took a step backwards <laughs> and um, the doors closed and as the dart was pulling away he, he gave me the guns through the window gave me the old finger guns you know and um, so when I was writing the character of um, of Ross O'Carroll I kind of thought of, I thought a lot about him like he is he is Ross in my head really uh, Is there any other funny experiences you've had with Black Rock lads? Yeah, I mean, I always um, I, I'm loath to swear on uh, on Blackrock College Radio, so so I'll I'll I'll, pron- I'll pronounce the word with an O instead of a U. But I was um, uh, I was at a, I was covering a match once, and um, I heard a kid from from Blackrock say to his dad, "I don't give a fuck how you think I played. Just crack open the wallet." <laughs> and <clears throat> that was. That was about, I'd say that was in the late 80s or early 90s. It was a long time ago. It was like 30 years ago, you know. And I remember just being amazed by that. <clears throat> it was my first time really covering schools rugby as a as a sports reporter. And I'd never really seen anything like it before. Like, I'd never kind of seen that kind of level of interest in a sport that wasn't professional. Um, you know, to, to see... A couple of thousand people at a, at a at a school's match was was really amazing. And um, but but that kid who said that to his dad, I I think that was the first kind of insight I got into you know this this world that you know I I wasn't part of it growing up and I had no real interest in rugby growing up and I certainly didn't know anything about the kind of the culture surrounding schools rugby in particular. Um, so that incident also that that would sort of that would stand out a lot for me. Do you think that culture of schools rugby is still living today, or have you got the chance to actually go to games recently? Yeah, it is. It is still there. It's a. I went to um, Michael's against Blackrock last year because um, we were doing some filming. Um, RT were making a documentary about um, twenty years of Russell Carroll Kelly, yeah. so they asked me to go along, and I hadn't been to a game in in, in a long, long time. Um, probably about ten years since I was last at, at a schools match. So uh, it, it was in it was in Donnybrook, and 
uh, I was just really happy to see that all that, you know, the kind of pageantry and the colour and the songs, they were all still very, very much part of it. And I, I'll never forget, I, we got to the ground about an hour, an hour before kick off, before a kickoff, and the, the, the Blackrock fans were already in the ground, and they were already singing an hour before kickoff. Now, I don't, you know, I, I was a sports journalist for, you know, close to 30 years, and I'd, I've been to very, very few sporting events where I've seen that kind of passion being generated an hour before the thing starts. I was, I was at Iran against Ireland in Tehran in 2001, and I saw that passion there then. But it's very rare you see it in Ireland. Even if you go to a rugby international 15 <clears throat> minutes before kickoff, nobody's in their seats. Everybody's yeah. still in the bar. Um, so this was, I was, I was kind of happy to see that, that that was the, but what was amazing was the Blackrock fans sang for an hour before the match, right the way through the match while they're watching their team get hammered. And then we're still in their seats singing at the end. And I, I like that, you know, I mean, I, I've taken the Mickey out of it for years and years, but there is still something special about, about schools rugby. There, there really is, you know, it's, it's the, so many elements of it, you know, the fact when you're watching it, you're aware that, you know, three or four of these players who you're watching, say in a final, are likely to be playing for Ireland one day. Um, you know, do, do, also that thing of, because uh, I always say that going, going to um, a, a fee-paying school, especially if the South Dublin fee-paying school is, a, is an excuse for a, a lifetime of adolescence, you know, and um, to see... Dads, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, I, I mean this in a nice way, to see kind of, you know, men in their 50s, men in their 60s, still going back to support the old school and still having that allegiance. Uh, I, I, I think there's, you know, it's, it's, it's a rare thing, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't happen in, in, in all sports. And, um, I mean, I went to St. Lawrence College in Lachlanstown and we, we played soccer. But the idea that today, you know, 32, 33 years after I left school, I would go back and, and watch yeah. their soccer team would, you know, I, I, it just wouldn't happen, you know, and then, so, so I think there's some, there is something really, really special about it. And I was glad when I went back last year to see that Black Rock Michaels match that all of those elements are still there. Um, your books are hugely successful nationwide and you've recently released your new book, Braywatch. Was there a defining moment that made you want to become an author? No. Um, the answer is no. <clears throat> I suppose I never really wanted to become an author. It was something that uh, that really happened by accident. I certainly never wanted to write um, fiction. I, I, you know, I wanted to be a, a sports writer from the time I was maybe eleven years old, and and I was ha and, and I became a sports writer, and I was happily doing that. And Russell Carl Kelly was a column I created, um, just as a joke, really. And it was to, just to pass time on a Friday afternoon. I would often be writing about subjects that, um, required me to, uh, sit down with the Tribune lawyer on a Friday night to go through my stuff. And, cause I was writing about things like, you know, the Michelle Smith case. I was writing about the FAI. Um, I was writing about the Olympic Council of Ireland. And the stuff I was writing tended to get a lot of, uh, solicitor's letters. So I was often on a Friday night sitting down with a lawyer, but I always had about four hours to kill on a Friday afternoon. And that's when I created this character just 
uh, drawing on my experiences of schools rugby, things, funny things I'd seen, funny things I'd heard, and I started putting them into this, into this sort of fictional uh, column. And I never ever wanted to be an author, and, and, and weirdly, I still don't, um, if you can believe that. Um, but it was one of those things that I, I did the column for a few years, two years, I think, <clears throat> and then I just decided to put them all together in a book, and the book. I published it myself because I couldn't find a publisher for it. Um, I kind of wildly overestimated the appeal of the book and got 5,000 of them printed. And, um, you know, and I was, I was literally driving around shops with all these, uh, books in the boot of a Nissan Micra I was driving at the time. And, uh, I would, I would, say, I would call into Eason's in, um, O'Connell Street and I would say to them, you know, I've written this book and, uh, it's about, you know, it's kind of about schools rugby, but it's kind of about the Celtic Tiger as well. And and then they would say, oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, we'll take five. And I had 5,000 of these things. So in the end, I think we sold about a 1,000, and then we pulped about 4,000, like sent them off to the pulping factory. They were all destroyed. And now they sell for about £100 sterling on, on uh, eBay. And I had... 4,000 of them. So that was a dumb decision. But, um, no, I, I never really, I never really wanted to be a fiction writer. I only ever wanted to be a sports writer. And pretty much everything that's happened in my life, in my professional life in the last 15 years, was, there was no design to it. I kind of, I took a sabbatical from the Sunday Tribune where I was a sports writer. I took a sabbatical for, uh, two years and that was 15 years ago. And, uh, and and I never went back. Uh, but all of it has been by accident, really, rather than by design. So when you started writing the Ross Carl Kelly books, did you ever think they would have the success they have today? No, not at all. I mean, especially when I ended up pulping 4,000 of them. I never believed. I thought that would be the end of it. Um, but the it, it's funny. I mean, I got, I got lucky in some ways <clears throat> in that I started off this column sending up schools rugby but then the Celtic Tiger happened at the same time. And suddenly there was a lot of things changing in Ireland, you know, like obviously you're too young to remember the, the eighties. The, I grew up in the 1980s and it was really, the country was really poor and hardly anybody had any money. You know, it was a really, really poor, depressed place. You know, in school, we would have just had a sense in school that we were, we were either going to be unemployed or we were going to have to emigrate. And, and a lot of, that was the, you know, the, the lot for a lot of young people. And then suddenly, you know, there was all this enthusiasm and excitement about Ireland and there was money around the place and it was, it was actually cheap to borrow money. And people suddenly had all of these lifestyle aspirations, you know. Um, yeah. uh, uh, so uh, people were traveling, going abroad on holidays, buying, buying second homes, holiday homes, all sorts of stuff like that. So the country completely changed over the course of about a decade. And I, I, around the late 90s, the, when once Ross had uh, won the Leinster School Senior Cup for Castle Rock College um, and then left, the column stopped being about schools rugby and started to be about that Ireland that, that we were witnessing, that yeah. those changes that were happening. And I think that's what really, I think that's what's given the, 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 the books and the character of Ross, the lifespan, the 22-year lifespan. It's just that 
I tried to start reflecting things that were happening in Ireland uh, rather than just having jokes about rugby. Yeah. So why did you choose to write about South Dublin and the absurd superiority complex in some of the private schools in South Dublin? I suppose you write, you know, the easiest thing to do is to write uh, from your own experience. And I think class is something we don't talk about um, a lot in Ireland. And yet it's it's prevalent in all our lives. You know, it shapes our lives. You know, um, there's you know, where you're born, um, you know, what your, what your parents do for a living, all of those things are hugely uh, influential in what you're, what, what you're going to do uh, in your life and where you're going to go in your life and who you're going to be and also, you know, what, what your socioeconomic status will be later on. Um, I was really conscious of all of that because um, I grew up, I'm from a working class background, um, you know, lived in a council house until I was 16. My dad was a factory worker, you know, with a very uh, uh, working class upbringing. Um, and I was very class conscious. I had a huge chip on my shoulder as a teenager um, about class, uh, you know, hated middle class people, um, listened to a lot of the House Martins. They were, they were a band who were kind of a socialist band. Uh, as you do when you're a teenager and you're, you know, your, your view of the world is just forming. And I had this sort of anger about class. And, and it, you know, there was nowhere better to observe it, these sort of class differences in Ireland than South Dublin, where, you know, we, you, where I grew up in Ballybrack, you know, you, you had council estates, but then Kleine was just half a mile up the road. And we, and the, you know, and there was some big houses there and, you know, people with money, and when we would go out, um, there was in the the Kleine Court Hotel, there was a disco on a Saturday night, and we would go there, and we would we would meet, we'd chatting to girls from um, Holy Child Kleine, and they would sort of say, "Oh, where are you from?" And we would tell them, and they they would have absolutely no idea where we were talking about, and this was half a mile away from where they were, from where they lived, and then they'd ask where we went to school, and we'd say Saint Lawrence College. And they had no idea where it was, and it was about a mile from their school. So you kind of had these two islands, and I always thought that was really interesting. This sort of twin track thing, and um, we were all on different tracks, you know. Yeah. And um, and I, I just I just found that fascinating. I don't think we we acknowledge. I don't know anybody really writes about class in Ireland. Um, you know, Roddy Doyle has done it. Yeah. Um, but but not many writers have, and I think the reason is because most writers, uh, certainly in Ireland, are middle class and they're not they're not class conscious. Yeah. Um. As well as writing novels, you're also a columnist for the uh, newspaper, the Irish Times. Yeah. What are the differences in your processes of writing between an article and a book, and which do you prefer? Oh, that's a really good question. Um. There, I mean, it, really, it's the same voice. Uh, and it's the same character, uh, so they should be very similar, but but they're not really. Um, when when I'm writing a book, uh, my the, my books are quite densely plotted. Um, so something that happens in chapter one, some some really really dumb thing that Ross does in chapter one is going to have repercussions in chapter four, and something he does in chapter five is going to come back to bite him in chapter eight. Um, so 
all of those things have to be uh, strung together. So it's kind of like, it's really like a jigsaw puzzle, you know, and and at the moment I'm plotting the book that's going to come out next September. I'm starting the writing of it now, um, and I have, you know, pages and pages of notes of what's going to happen, but I don't know where those things are going to happen. Yeah, so. Sure. At the, it's kind of like having, do you know, it's like, it's like having a clock. Yeah. And you pull the clock apart and you're looking at springs and cogs and wheels. And you know, all of the elements of a clock are there on your kitchen table, but you don't know how they all fit together. Whereas a column is quite, is, is much easier because what I tend to do with a column is they're standalone. They're either a standalone column that kind of with a, you know, a, a beginning, a middle and an end. Yeah. Uh, or I might, have a little sort of short storyline that will run over three weeks. But I don't have to, for a column, I don't have to do the level of plotting I do for a book. It's just, I sit down, I get up really early in the morning, but usually about five, and I'll have plotted it, what's going to be in the column the night before, over the course of about an hour, and then I can write it in about three to four hours. Um, whereas the book, you know, the books, the books kind of happen they gestate over a period of maybe sort of six months or seven months. Yeah, wow, that's a long time. So which one do you prefer between writing a, um, a column or a book? Um, I think I prefer the books. Um, I always kind of feel that, you know, the, the, the weekly column, I really enjoy doing it, but the, the thrill for me is in finishing a book and seeing it in a shop. Um, I mean, that's kind of... That, I mean, I... I think it's, that's a, it's it sounds like a kind of trite answer, but I think it is the reason we all do what we do. You know, you do, you 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 write because you have this vision in your head that one day people are going to go into a bookshop and pay money for what you've written, uh, for the for the pleasure of reading what you've written, and um, and that still you know that that still excites me all these years later. And um, you know, when Braywatch uh, was in the shops. And uh, in Dubray, um, the bookshop in Bray, they they did a whole window of my book, and you know the thrill of that. Like you know, it's, it's, I drove to Bray just to have a look at it. Yeah. And that's this is book twenty one, you know, and, and I'm still getting a kick out of it. So I think probably the books, the, writing the book is a, it's a much more pleasurable thing, as well as that because they're longer. There's more of a sense of an of achievement. Um, with the with the weekly column, uh, because I was a because I wrote for newspapers for years, I, I'm aware of the disposable nature of newspaper of anything that appears in a newspaper. You know, we used to have this phrase that um, today's news is tomorrow's chip wrapping, um, and and it's true. You know that yeah. once it's once it's written, people have read it, uh, people have digested it, and then it's gone. Whereas a book is. It's a more lasting thing, you know, that there's a chance people might put it on their shelves and it might be there for years and they might lend it to someone or they might sit down and reread it again five or six years later. So I think I think I, I get more of a kick out of that, I think, the yeah, idea of sure. that. Well, what would you say your favorite book that you've written was? I still love the very, very first uh Rafa Carol Kelly book. Um yeah, and I sure. think I, I, th I think that I think a lot of authors would say that about that book that the the, the first one um, is a is a favourite because especially with a long running series like this you know um, in some ways a lot of the books sort of blend in blend into one in my mind but 
the miseducation of Rosa Kelly really stands out for me because it was the it was the genesis of the character and uh, it's kind of his origin story and when I'm writing about him now all of these flaws in his character and then all the really good qualities in his character all hark back to this time he spent at school when he was you know the best kick probably the best kicker in the country where he was a hero among his peer group where you know girls were throwing themselves at uh, themselves at him and 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 this kind of monster this absolute egomaniac was born and uh i i that that's the one that's the, the miseducation, I think, is the one that I'm, I'm looking back. I'm happiest with. Like, if I could, if the house was on fire and I had to run, I could only take one book, one of my books. I, I think I'd grab that one. Yeah, that's fair. Is it difficult to keep on writing a better book than the previous one? Yeah, it is, and and I'm conscious all the time that because because I'm 22 books, 21 books into the series, you're always thinking to yourself. Uh, you know, does the world need another Rafa Carroll Kelly book? And and that's a good thing that you think that way because, uh, you know, I, I'm always aware that every book has to be better than the last one because the series has been going on for so long. I'm aware that, like, I've got, you know, I think each book probably sells between 40 and 50,000 copies. But, so I've got a, I've got a, a, hard, a you know, a hardcore of fans there who've been with me from the beginning. But I know that if I let the quality drop off, that they might say next year, oh, I didn't really like the last one. I think I'll, I'll give the next one a miss. And um, it is it is always good to remind yourself of that. I, I have a great editor called Rachel Pierce, and she she would not let me write a lazy book. So if she thinks I'm resting on my laurels or if she thinks uh, I'm thinking about coasting it for a book or two, uh, she's on me straight away, you know, and... Um, like before I sit down to write a word of a book uh, I sit down with her to discuss what storylines are going to be in it and we absolutely interrogate those storylines is it good enough is it funny enough is it similar to something you've done before because I am aware of you know 20 something books in that there's an element of repetition involved so I try to keep the storylines fresh and then I'm always asking am I Am I reflecting what's actually happening in the world right now in this book? Um, so that's it, really. You know, that's kind of that's what what keeps me on my toes, I suppose. You know, and keeps the books fresh after all these years. Yeah, that's fair enough, and it's good that people are around you to help you. Uh, did you have any challenges on your way to becoming a successful author? And if you could give yourself one piece of advice when you started writing, what would it be? Did I have any particular challenges? Um, like really, uh, I mean, everything was a challenge, really. You know, because when I was a when I was a journalist, like you know, when I was a sports writer, because you're always chasing the next story, um, and you never wanted to be beaten on a story by you know a, a, a rival newspaper. Yeah. Um, so, but but as an author, I think the biggest challenge really was was to to establish the character. I mean, I mentioned earlier on that I pulped 4,000 books. Um, that, was, <laughs> that was a challenge, all right, yeah, you know, yeah. um, when I wildly overestimated the demand for Rafa Carroll Kelly at the start. Um, but uh, 
you know, once I think once word got around about the character and about the book, it it became it became a little bit easier then, you know. Mm. Um, but really, every day is a challenge in its own way. I'm 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 fortunate in one way one way in that I work from home and I have an office in the house and I go in there at five o'clock in the morning and I I, te- I do maybe a twelve hour day, which is a long day, especially when you're writing and you're trying to be creative. Um, so that's a huge challenge because even though I'm a morning person, it's very, very difficult to drag yourself to the desk at, at five, five o'clock in the morning yeah. and start writing, especially when you don't, you know, because the stuff I write is funny or supposed to be funny, you don't always feel in the, in the humor for cracking jokes at five o'clock in the morning. Um, so, so it's very much work. Um, and what was the second part of the question? Uh, if you could give yourself one piece of advice uh, when you started writing, what would it be? Oh, I mean, learn to concentrate. I mean, that's the, the toughest thing of all, um, especially in the modern world uh, with with the internet and um, social media, mobile phone on the desk, yeah. all those things. The toughest thing of all is concentration. And when my concentration is... is disastrous now and it used to be good in the old days before all these extra distractions came in I could sit and I could stare at a blank page for three hours trying to think of the first word and often that's what writing is and then you type the word and then an hour later you you delete it and and that's part of the process you know the that agony and now it's difficult to go through that because why would you stare at a blank green for three hours when you can go on uh you know the the cnn website and read about the american election results coming in or you know like listen to a bruce springsteen the new bruce springsteen album on your computer like everything is there on your computer so there's thousands of uh, potential avenues of distraction for you um but writing writing really is about it's about patience and it's about you know, nothing happening happening for a long time, and then sometimes inspiration strikes, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you have to drag the words out of yourself. Um, but concentration is the thing I would I always tell people. That's the greatest discipline you can learn as a writer. Forget about you know vocabulary, plot, all that kind of stuff. That will come. You'll learn that. Um, but concentration is the, is absolutely the first principle of writing and the most important element of it. Yeah. And if you were trapped on a desert island with one of the characters from your books, who would you choose and why? <laughs> uh, I think without a shadow of a doubt it would be Ronan. Because <laughs> um, I think Ronan would get me off the island. <laughs> everybody else everybody else in the books is flawed to some degree, like, you know, yeah. like um, Ross wouldn't. Ross wouldn't have a clue to get, how to get you off the island and, you know, Surika wouldn't. Surika's too soft and you know, God knows what his mother would would do to get him off the island. But I think Ronan would be terrific company. Yeah. On the island as well. I think he 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 he's a character. I still love uh, writing Ronan, and I love writing his dialogue. Um, and he he's he, Ronan based uh, on a kid I knew, um, who's a, a relative of mine, uh, who grew up as well in Ballybrack, the same estate I grew up in Ballybrack, and. He was the toughest kid I ever saw. Like, he was just, even like at eight years of age, he was just a hard man, like, you know. 
he'd say, he used to read Paul Williams books and all these crime books, and he knew all about, like, the general and, uh, and all these gangsters. And he was just very funny, and he knew, he knew, he, he kind of talked like an adult, like he was just a sort of tough guy who talked like a, who talked like a 30-year-old career criminal. And, um, so Ronan is, is kind of largely based on him. And he, he came to one of the plays with me. He's grown up now and he has his own kids and everything, but he came to one of the plays, the Rossicar Kelly plays with me about 10 years ago. And we were leaving the theatre and he says to me, oh, jeez, I love your man Ronan. And I, so I was able to tell him, well, actually, there's probably a reason why you love him, because yeah. he's you. Um, but yeah, definitely Ronan. I think, I think, even if we didn't get rescued, even if he didn't find us away off the island, I think it would be very, very entertaining. Yeah. Anyway, that's all we have time for. Thank you very much for coming in. Uh, Pleasure. Especially, yeah, thank you very much. We've been 4-5 English on BCR. Thank you for listening and goodbye.